Hello, this is Father John Arnold, and this is Oro Valley Catholic. Welcome back. The 25th Sunday of Ordinary Time, and in the Gospel according to Luke, Jesus warns against greed, and greed in the ancient world as it is today is just acquiring things far in excess of your needs and relying on them. Instead, he says, use your wealth in this world to make friends in eternal dwellings. This is the gospel. Jesus said to his disciples, the person who is trustworthy in very small matters is also trustworthy in great ones. And the person who is dishonest in very small matters is also dishonest in great ones. If therefore you are not trustworthy with dishonest wealth, who will trust you with true wealth? If you're not trustworthy with what belongs to another, who will give you what is yours? No servant can serve two masters. You'll either hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. So today we're going to talk about the deadly sins and salvation, especially the reading from the first letter of Timothy. So let's take a turn to talking about salvation and sin. I think probably most of us were catechized the same way. You can memorize the Ten Commandments. You understood the Trinity. Because the way that the Western Church has taught the faith is it's taught it in very dogmatic ways. Dogma is very important, but throughout human history, religion has always made use of poetry. If you look at the Old and the New Testament, about a third of it is written in poetry. And why? Because poetry has the ability to move the heart and move the mind, appeal to the whole person in a way that maybe is lacking sometimes when we teach religion uh, right out of the catechism. You know, one of my favorite American poets is a man named Dana Joya. He used to be the head of the NEA, National Endowment of the Arts, and Poet Laureate for uh, California. And I think I've read all of his poems and his essays. I think he's terrific, and I recommend him highly. Dana Joya, G-I-O-I-A. Take him and sit in front of the Blessed Sacrament sometime. Here's a poem that he wrote called The Burning Ladder, and it's based on that story in Genesis about Jacob falling asleep with his head on a stone, and he had a dream of angels ascending and descending a ladder to heaven. So here's how Mr. Joya uses that image in talking about salvation. The Burning Ladder by Dana Joya. Jacob never climbed the ladder, burning in his dream, sleep presented him like a stone in the dust. And when he should have risen like a flame to join that choir, he was sick of traveling and closed his eyes to the seraphim, ascending unconscious of the impossible distances between their steps, missed them mount the brilliant ladder slowly disappearing into the scattered light between the stars, slept, though through it all a stone upon a stone pillow, shivering, gravity always greater than the desire. What a great poem. It's about this impetus that Jacob has to climb this ladder, but his head is sleeping on a stone, then he becomes like a stone. And gravity, what holds him back, 
inertia. This is what keeps them from ascending to God on that ladder. I used to have a secretary, my favorite secretary of all time, back when I was practicing law, Bernie. And she used to say that the only thing that held our law firm together was inertia. She had touched on an important point about the life in the world. And that life is about how you overcome inertia and ascend. So think of this poem from, from the great Dana Joya. Climbing versus gravity. Grace versus sin. You know, St. Therese of Lisieux, my favorite, she used to say she didn't want a staircase to God. She didn't want a ladder. She wanted an elevator because she believed in the power of grace. But you still have to cooperate. You got to get up off the stone and climb. So now we're going to talk about God's desire for all men and women to be saved and what the heck we might do about it. The second reading for this Sunday, the 25th Sunday of Ordinary Time, is from the first letter of Saint Tim, first letter to St. Timothy. St. Paul is writing St. Timothy and giving him instructions on how to be a pastor. You know, there's this group of letters that uh, are uh, all from Paul and probably late in his life uh, when the church had developed more. There's First and Second Timothy and Titus letters that he wrote. They're all part of the Pauline corpus. There has been some controversy about whether uh, they're from Paul or not, but the early church attested that they were, and I think that should be enough for us Catholics. Now, all of these letters were written when the, the people being served are Gentiles. You know, Paul has a lot of arguments going on in his letters about Judaizers. Those are the ones that think that you have to learn how to be a Jew before you can be a Christian. And St. Paul fought against that, especially in Acts of the Apostles and his letter to the Galatians. And so it could be that some of the enemies that are mentioned in the first letter of Timothy, which we don't get very much, and it's worth talking about, because it could have been written in the, in the 60s or the 50s, um, which is Paul, after 20 or 30 years of service, um, when he talks about people with knowledge, he's probably talking about Gnostics. I've talked about Gnosticism before in this podcast. It is the reignant philosophy in America. The idea that the real me is my intellectual ability. It's not my body. It's somehow I'm trapped in this body. And what you do with the body doesn't matter. It's your intentionality that matters. And you can look in the mirror and say, I'm a good person. Well, what you do with your body may, may beg to differ. But the point of the Gnostics is, is they really were not attuned to the sins of the body. Um, they thought that the key was to get away from the body. But the key for Christians was that we could, by our will and our intellect, take control of ourselves, exercise dominion uh, over the body, because it's the entire body that's going to be raised. No point in trying to escape the body. It just will not happen. You have to get the body to cooperate. St. Francis of Assisi used to refer to his body as brother ass, you know, uh, as in get your ass in gear, as in uh, stubborn, as in hard to work with. Um, and so not a bad way to think about yourself, right? Kind of loving, but at the same time recognize that inertia holds us back. And so in Paul's letter to, uh, to Timothy, 
he uh, talks about false and useless teaching, which is probably the Gnostic teaching about how you escape through certain kind of magical formulas, the body, and then uh, how it is to deal with older people with respect in the community. And I appreciate this letter as I get older and hope people treat me with respect. And then what's interesting is there's deacons, presbyters, and uh, bishops in, in this letter, which uh, says this is an established Christian community he's writing to because the apostles founded the bishops. The bishops probably first created deacons, that's Acts of the Apostles, and presbyters like myself uh, came along a little later. And so also in that letter, it's about care of the widows um, and how do you uh, take care of administration because the church is going to get more complicated like it is today, how you deal with liturgical uh, celebrations, etc. First Timothy is a Catholic epistle because it sounds just like the Catholic Church. I don't think um, the uh, fruits of the Reformation, um, the evangelicals, for an exa example, have much use for uh, letters like 1 Timothy because there's such an established hierarchy in the church there. But the part that we're in, in the, in the gospel, in the readings for the 25th Sunday, is that very first chapter of 1 Timothy. And it says, Beloved, first of all, I ask that supplications, prayers for kings, and for all in authority, petitions and thanksgivings be offered for everyone that we may lead a quiet and tranquil, tranquil life. This is good and pleasing to God our Savior in all devotion and dignity, who wills everyone to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. That's how the reading starts out. So who are they praying for? They're praying for Augustus Caesar. They're praying for the governors that are killing uh, Christians because they're in authority, and this is the world that we live in. The early Christians did not think they were going to take over political processes. I wish we would get out of that way of thinking. We are pilgrims in this world. This is not ever going to be the kingdom of heaven. But we pray for President Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Donald Trump. Pick out your favorite leader that you love to not love, Vladimir Putin, anybody else, and pray for them today. But it's that second part. God wills everyone to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth because Jesus died for all men. And so Jesus isn't preaching universalism, which was the early 19th century religion, Unitarian Universalism, where everyone will be saved. Uh, that reduces life to the same value as to an atheist. There isn't any point in what you do when you get up in the morning. But friends, there is a point to what you do when you get up in the morning. So then St. Paul goes on, because you're called to live a holy life. There is one God, there's also one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. This was the testimony at the proper time. For this I was appointed preacher and apostle. I'm speaking the truth, I am not lying. Teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. It is my wish then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. And so God desires all to be saved. Our role is to pray for all of those, especially those who are just so far from the gospel. He wants them to be saved. He wants them to come to true knowledge. This is our role as we um, work for our own salvation. So think about how this has come down about salvation. Uh, Martin Luther, who started the Reformation uh, in the early 16th century, 
One of the things he took on was the Catholic understanding of what salvation was. You know, we have sacraments, baptism, confirmation, Eucharist. I'll just stop at those three for right now. And we say they actually confer a character on us. They change who we are. Baptism actually conforms us to the person of Christ. It's a spiritual circumcision, according to St. Paul's letter to the Colossians. Confirmation is when we're actually given the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And the Eucharist is we consume the body and blood of Christ and are then lifted up um, into uh, Christ at the right hand of the Father. Because for Catholics, salvation is the transformation of our characters, our bodies, our feelings, our intellect, the totality of human beings into being another Christ. Martin Luther disagreed. He called it imputed, um, imputed justification. That is, it's like a cloak that covers our sin. So he would say we're simultaneously justified and sinner. He says it's like uh, Christ touches us with his word. And when you come to that word in faith, then that touch heals you. But it doesn't appear in Martin Luther's um, theology to actually transform you. You know, John Calvin, who was one of the great minds at the beginning of Calvinism, which is really the fundamental religious movement in the United States, not Lutheranism, not Catholicism, but Calvinism. It was pretty harsh. He looked at human beings as absolutely degraded, could do nothing for our salvation. It's salvation comes through grace alone. Remember, those are the three things of the Reformation, according to the Reformers. Faith alone, grace alone, uh, scripture alone. Now, none of those things are in the Bible. They're just interpretations of these people, but mostly because it takes Catholicism out of the picture. And ultimately what happens is governments just take over, which is what happened pretty much with, with all the Protestant Reformation. But John Calvin went a step further because John Calvin wanted to explore the sovereignty of God. And for Calvin, God is all-knowing. He is for us too. God is all power. He is for us too. But it's how he understands it. So John Calvin came up with this idea about salvation called double predestination. And what that means is, when you are created in the womb, when mom and dad first get together in that ovum, uh, implants in your mom's uh, wonderful womb, uh, at that moment, God already knows you're created for hell or created for heaven. That's double predestination. You're on a train. There's nothing you can do to get off. Why? Because your human character is so degraded, your free will is absolutely a slave to sin. And because he had that idea that it was only grace, human beings couldn't do anything about it, then from there he just followed it logically to, uh, if you're going to heaven or hell, there's really nothing you can do about it. Um, so for the Puritans who really started religion in this country, the idea is, is you may not know whether you're going to heaven or you go to hell, but if you're living a, a righteous life, that's some sign that you're going to heaven. None of this stuff is Catholicism. Um, the Catholics, of course, agree that human nature has fallen. They agree that sin is passed down through us, uh, not through bad habit, not through imitation, but propagation. There's just something in us 
um, that is twisted. Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, called it the selfish gene. It's probably the one point of connection he has ever had uh, with, uh, the Catholic, with the Catholic faith. But there is some kind of uh, flaw in us. We are created, but we're flawed. And so, not degraded though. Our will is still capable of choice so that we can actually respond to God's grace. And so for Catholics, God begins by reaching out to us in, in the life of grace through his son, uh, through his, the sacraments. We can only respond. You know what the great sign of our belief in the necessity of grace above all things to save us? First grace, I should say, primarily grace moving, is baptism of infants because they can't do anything uh, to earn the sacrament. They can't even speak for themselves. It is an act of pure grace to baptize an infant. And then for those parents to nurture that tiny flame of life in those children, this is the work of saints. And so for Trent, the Council of Trent, which occurred in the uh, end of the 16th century, Martin Luther died when the first session of the Council of Trent started, um, they had points of contact with Calvin and Lutheran and the Protestants. Um, but this whole understanding of this fracture in each of us uh, would give uh, uh, fuel to what some of the arguments in Catholic circles were during the Counter-Reformation. And the other is, is grace more important, is free will more important? This is called the De Auxilius Controversy between the Dominicans and the Jesuits until the Pope brought an end to it. Because if you try to come up with a theological expression that gives you the exact balance between grace and free will and how they operate, this is simply beyond the power of human intellect to do. Um, the D Dominicans and Jesuits, smart people, but no, there's just so much. You know, but it says one of the problems about what we have uh, when we talk about salvation, if we try to reduce it down to just uh, dogmatic understandings or formulas that we memorize, as important as the intellectual life in the church is, remember what I said about salvation. We're not Gnostics. This isn't just about thinking right. This is about the entire human being restored. And what I want to suggest to you in your prayer life if you're looking to give it a bit of a boost, is to think about incorporating into your prayer life and your understanding of salvation other dimensions besides just reading discursive prayers of intercession, as important as they are, or reading one more book that explains to you Catholic faith, as important as it is. I want you to think about using poets when next time you pray. Great Catholic poets that help lift up your heart and your understanding. I'm gonna make a couple suggestions. I've already talked about Dana Joya, and I wanna give you one more poem that he's written that I really love. And then we're gonna conclude with one of my all-time favorite poets, who I really urge you to read in front of the Blessed Sacrament. I'll be back in a moment. Do you remember The Burning Ladder by Dana Joya? It was about Jacob's Ladder. I read it at the beginning of the podcast. You could go back and listen to it. You could actually find it on the internet. 
The Burning Ladder by Dana Joya, G-I-O-I-A, or better yet, buy his book, 99 Selected Poems, which you can buy on Amazon, and just take it into prayer with you. This guy is a great Catholic poet because he's a great poet to start with and with a great Catholic faith. But here's a book, there's a, a, a poem he wrote about sin, which I urge you to read and contemplate on as you're preparing for your next confession, maybe in front of the Eucharist. This poem by Dana Joy is entitled, The Seven Deadly Sins. Forget about the other six, says pride. They're only using you. Admittedly, lust is a looker, but you can do better. And why do they keep bringing us to this cheesy dive? The food's so bad that even gluttony can't finish his meal. Notice how avarice keeps refilling his glass whenever he thinks we're not looking, while envy eyes your plate. Hell, we're not even done, and anger is already arguing about the bill. I'm the only one who ever leaves a decent tip. Let them all go, the losers. It's a relief to see Sloth's fat ass go out the door. But stick around, I have a story that not everyone appreciates about the special satisfaction of staying on board as the last grubby lifeboat pushes away. You know what I love about the poem is you have to understand who's writing it. And it's the sin of pride and how he looks down on all the other sins and how all those people with those sins are not worthy of him. I read and reread that book poem. I love that poem. He's just so very good. But you know, it's not enough just to think about our own inertia because we recognize that on our own, we're really not capable of becoming saints. It's not really enough to think about our sins, even with sorrow, as important as it is as we go to confession and we think about changing our lives. If you just focus on all the challenges to follow Christ, then you never really get what's beautiful about him, what the promise of faith is. God desires that all human beings be saved. When Jesus spoke in the gospel today, he was echoing the voice of God given to Amos, where people just oppress the poor. And so Jesus is saying, there's things you can do for your salvation. Think of the dishonest wealth. You didn't give yourself your parents, your brains, or anything else. You didn't even create the interstate uh, highway system. You came into a world where so much was presented to you. Yes, you had challenges. And we all know some people have much more challenges from the womb than others. Those are the people that God loves and God wants to reach out to. But for the rest of us who feel a little more privileged in life, just to remember with joy what it is God wants for us, our salvation. And so yes, we need to overcome all of these sins. Yes, we need to get off our butt and do something uh, about our faith to respond to grace. But can I give you a poem? And if you buy Mr. Joya's poems, I hope you also buy a nice little book, maybe the Everyman's Library of Gerard Manley Hopkins, who is one of the greatest poets of all time. He's um, he's like Dante in my mind, although I'm not much of a judge. I just think he's a great poet. And how he speaks to the modern heart. Uh, died at the end of the 19th century. Catholic convert. Had to walk away from everything in life when he converted to the Catholic faith in England. 
His parents essentially disowned him because there was so much anti-Catholic prejudice in England. There still is. They still sing anti-Catholic songs at soccer games in Scotland, for heaven's sakes. So we just have to remember our history and remember this great Jesuit Catholic uh, who died from uh, typhoid, I think, while teaching at the school, a uh, university in, in uh, Dublin. But one of the books, one of the poems he wrote early on is, in his Jesuit time was a poem about what it means uh, to be saved, what it means to love God and find God in your life. Because it's about nature, the t totality of the human person, every natural gift we have being lifted up into the supernatural. The name of this poem is, as kingfishers catch fire, dragonfly straw flame. Here's the poem by Jared Manley Hopkins, Jesuit. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim and roundy wells, stones ring like each tucked string tells, each hung bells, bow swung, finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoors, each one dwells, sells, goes itself, myself, it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. I say more, the just man justices, keeps grace, that keeps all his goings graces, acts in God's eye, what in God's eye he is, Christ, for Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. I love that poem. His idea of inscape, what's in us, ourselves, what dwells in doors in us is Christ wanting to be made manifest in the features of our faces, how you look at love with your spouse, your children, your neighbor, the poor. This is the gaze of God that is meant for each of us. It's that fire of the Holy Spirit given to us in confirmation. It's entering into the death of Christ through baptism. It's being lifted up through Christ as we chew his body and drink his blood. So, yes, God wills that all men be saved and have knowledge of him. But when St. Timothy was talking about knowledge of God, he wasn't talking about a bunch of propositions. Propositions are involved, but it doesn't reduce to that. He was talking about being washed by God and experiencing him and knowing him, feeling the touch of the flame of the Holy Spirit, being enlivened by the body and blood of Christ, knowing like a spouse knows a spouse on their wedding night. This is the knowledge of God. This is what we're built for. Our temptation is to reduce it to things that we memorize in religious education and promptly forget. But experience of God, this, my friends, changes us. It's why salvation isn't like a cloak covering us, just imputed. It's like every human being can respond to God at some level and find him. But for us Catholics, who have knowledge of God because it comes from our deep, felt, sacramental, scriptural experience. I suppose you could just read a paragraph from the Catechism 
Or you can read the poetry of Dana Joya and Jared Manley Hopkins and so many other great Catholic poets that you can have your hearts touched in prayer in a very new way as that inner Christ yearns to shine through your human face before the Father. God bless you. See you next week on Oro Valley Catholic.